Welcome to day five of Global Supply Chain Week. I'm Dooner, and that's the dude. Hey, good Friday afternoon from Freight Alley. What's going on, man? You satiated from lunch? Just got back, everyone out there, you're back in your seats, your blood sugar good? I'm good, man. I'm it's day five. You've been with this through all five days, too. You've, you've been a trooper, right? There's been great content here. Absolutely. A lot of media content, a lot to absorb. In fact, so much so, you might want to catch it on demand. I don't think anyone, not everyone can sit here five days straight, right? If you did, you win a gold prize. Um, Do I get a gold prize then? You get a gold prize. You, you actually Sweet. watch that through with now. No, but if you've missed any sessions from here, there's multiple ways you can re-experience them. You can go to tv.freightways.com. You can watch any of them on demand as soon as they're uploaded. You can download the Freightways TV app. You can watch it on your TV, your iOS device. Uh, or if you like audio, like me, because you don't like sitting still, you prefer to move around and listen yeah, to things and consume yeah. knowledge, you can go look up Freightcast wherever you get your podcasts, yep. right? Look mm-hmm. up Freightcast. Every Absolutely. single Freightways podcast is on there, including every single session from did, this, uh, this set. Did you have a favorite so far? I, I, I did, and it, it was, all of it was excellent, right? And I love the interaction with people and stuff like that. But my absolute favorite, because it hit me, was uh, Bob Goldenberg with Crowley. Ah, yeah, just yeah, it because it's the it's the Caribbean trade lane, and I was in that for a while, and we really don't talk about our exports into there, which really support those entire economies. So it's a pretty important trade lane. You know, we also had Polkarion for our keynote, and it turns out there's a bit of a swan song for him as he is leaving his post. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, good that's stuff. True. All of that you can find on Freightcast. Before we get into things, though, there's a mystery that's been roiling the internet. It's been going around. Everybody wants to Ooh. know what this tastes like. Let's take a look here. What's going on? Coca-Cola has Coca-Cola Starlight, and instead it combines the great Coca-Cola taste with a dash of the unexpected, including a reddish hue. i got to ask you, what do you think it's going to taste like? I'm going with Disappointment. You're going to disappoint me? Well, here's a little bit more. It says, inspired by space, has notes reminiscent of stargazing around a campfire, as well as a cooling sensation that evokes the feelings of a cold journey to space. So we have NASA on What the Truck once a month, right? They've told us space tastes like burnt steak. Sizzling steak. See, after that there, that's what I'm saying. This is disappointment, man. I I mean, I I envision smoke and eucalyptus, a burning campfire and... and I would take marshmallows like s'mores, like a chocolate. Well, yeah, all right. That would be all right. Yeah, yeah. Look, the best way to learn freight knowledge is through memes. Let's take a look at one here. Right here, if you guys have been out here, you've seen what's been going on <laughs> in awesome. the Port of L.A., right? So you're like, I'm a smart logistics manager. I'm going to go to the East Coast instead. I'm finally going to make the jump. Well, here it says, diverting your freight to the Port of L.A. to Port of Charleston. Uh, the diplomat from Book of Boba Fett, all happy. Then he just realizing there's now 27 ships at anchor at Charleston. Yeah, not so much anymore. <laughs> Take a look at here, though. Here's the vessel map. Uh, you'll see all these vessels just sitting here right outside Charleston. Some interesting things on that, too. So for the past 11 consecutive months, Port of Charleston has been setting volume records. Right. Yeah, like many, right? 27 vessels as of yesterday. They've been between 25 and 30. It's now the second most port, also second most crowded port behind L.A. and Long Beach with vessels waiting over eight days right now. But they've had a big jump in automotive, too. So a lot of you out there looking for new cars, you've been looking for this chip thing. They've had a 16% jump in automotive in January alone. So maybe some reinforcements are coming there if you're in the market. Yeah. Speaking of the Port of Los Angeles, Michael Vincent. Yes, sir. All those containers, right? Big issue. We talked to Drake Community. Where do we put all of these containers? 
Yeah, I, I would say Absolutely. you send them back yeah. to China and refill yeah. them up. How about putting them back on the ships and go there? What happened to these sweeper vessels? Well, I, I don't know. Well, Mark <laughs> Solomon reports, though, that Chunker, right, a marketplace for leasing gotcha. short-term lowered space, has leased six sites in California that can house 20 thousand containers all right sounds good sounds like a start however some people reached out to me from the drake community after this and they yeah. said things like worst idea ever it adds a thousand to three thousand dollars to each container per diem clock does not stop they dig out the containers when you come to ask two hour wait times and the trucker still has to return the box to the terminal he said unless this is forced he sees zero participation yeah, that doesn't sound good in a per diem clock not stopping. I think that's one of the biggest things, right? You're getting charged for stuff you can't or not, can't get anyways. Yeah. It's, it's not like it's in your control, which is... I got to agree with you good. there. Last piece of news, this is we're talking about oil, energy, automotive, all those kind of things yeah. on today's show. There's been a big push for EVs and trucking. You all know about that, EVs with charging, the infrastructure, everything that goes on it. Well, the American Trucking Association is aware of this, and they said they want a seat at the table knowing what's going on with this charging infrastructure that's being unrolled. The ATA said, to me, man. without the financial means to install chargers, let alone the high price of EV power units, roughly one-third of small trucking companies will be extremely challenged to play in this electrified space. We have some guests on today. We're going to talk about that, too. We have John Kingston. He's the editor-at-large at Freightways. He's going to talk about the pain at the pump we've all been feeling. He's going to talk about this scary Russia-Ukraine conflict, what that means for oil. He's going to tell us about the future of uh, fuels. Nate Schutz, he's the host of the Bootstrapper's Guide to Logistics. He's going to talk about entrepreneurship in freight. ton of that going on in EV. First, we've got to tip our hat to our sponsors, then we'll get to our first guest. Do it. Thank you very much to Universal and Ryder, who have helped us put on today's show. But right now, let's get over to Darren Epps. He's the Senior Director of Advanced Vehicle Technology over at Ryder System. And as I understand it, too, he has some Chattanooga blood. I was looking into his background, Michael Vincent. Yeah, that's right. He was with the Chattanooga right. Free Press for, I think, six years or so. He even wrote a book about the Tennessee Volunteers. Is this true? Are you from Chattanooga, sir? I lived there... Uh... Briefly, I, my first career out of college was a sports writer, which uh, I got to cover uh, SEC football. I'm a University of Georgia grad. I got to throw that in. Um, but uh, it was a great first job out of college. But, um, you know, once you try to meet girls and uh, have a family, you try to look for something <laughs> else. It, it, yeah. didn't pay, it didn't pay well. I got to see some cool, cool sporting events. And, yeah, so I bet statements. you did. But, Wait, so, you're telling me saying that you're a Times Free Press reporter at the Pickle Barrel doesn't like, you know, that's not getting the dates that hey, way. Well, you know what is sexy, though? What? EVs, right? EVs oh, are incredibly sexy. sexy but yeah. like we said in our story right before we brought you on, still a lot of questions, right? Especially in trucking. What comes first, right. the charging or the equipment? A lot of things to be answered. But let's start with what you do. What do you do over at, um, over at the advanced uh, technology sector at, uh, at Ryder? Yeah, so I've uh, been been at Ryder almost a year now. I came over from Southern Company, big utility in the southeast, um, where I ran electric transportation program. So a lot of support on the passenger vehicle side uh, across the southeast, put in a lot of charging. Uh, here at Ryder, looking at our strategy on EV, um, you know, what who do we partner with? Um, you know, and not just the vehicles, but the charging. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned charging. That sometimes gets lost. Uh, when discussing this this topic, um, it's, it's so new to a lot of people. So, yeah, just um, plotting the future of uh, electrification at Ryder. All right. So, hey, before uh, we get to the future of electrification, yeah. let's set the current uh, landscape of EVs. Are the trucks out there as, you know, as we're hearing that they're actually out there and being available? 
What is the current state right now? Let's start from ground zero. Yeah, great question. Uh, you know, I think there's a lot of uh, photos, a lot of pictures of EVs. Uh, some are the, the same EV just getting passed around. Uh, because this industry is in is in pre-production units, um, you know, this, we've been talking about this for a while. The timelines have elongated. You know, in, in many cases, there's more you know, chips in an electric truck than in a diesel, so uh, not immune to those challenges. And then whenever you have a new technology, there's been a lot of new players in this space. Uh, you know, the timeline's going to increase and increase. So uh, really this year, and I think maybe first half of next, it'll We'll still see, you know, pre-production, small production. Uh, but I think we start hitting scale here in a couple of years uh, on, you know, class six through eight. Uh, the light duty vans are close. Um, I think, mm-hmm. you know, you'll see a lot of more production in 2023. Um, really excited about some of the products coming out in that space. Um, the yard tractors, that, that is something that's here today. The electric yard tractors, drivers just love those. So that's sort of the landscape. You know, it's light duty and the yard tractors, and then you know, medium duty, heavy duty. So what Makes comes sense. first? You know, the chicken and the egg of electrification is what comes first: the EVs or the charging, the equipment or the infrastructure. Whenever you're sort of starting out a new category, you have this this hurdle, right? Because you kind of need the beta testers to come in and want to use this electrification to help build out this entire network. But what about for your average carrier who's trying to figure out when to jump in? When do I need to get in here? And you know, they also have regulations hanging over their head. Yep, yep, they sure do. Um, the charging always comes first. You're, you're not going to go very far with an electric truck if you don't have a charging station. So um, and it, what, what else is important about that is, you know, charging, you know, there's, there's long lead times on the charger, but more importantly, just getting the infrastructure done at your, your building can be, you know, a year-long process. So, um, you know, going from just the evaluation uh, panel space, uh, you know, are you single phase, three phase power? Um, there's a lot that goes into a facility evaluation when it comes to electrification, particularly if you're putting in, you know, significant amounts of charging. So um, that infrastructure project could require permitting, utility may have to get involved. So, you know, we we tell customers, get think about the charging now, get your facilities evaluated, um, you know, see what the cost might be, the, the prime locations to put the chargers, um, you know, get the permits done if needed, uh, and before you before you even think about the truck. I, th- I think this video we're looking at, too, I th- is that showing yeah. off the advanced vehicle technology sector at Ryder? It looks really high-tech and exciting. I even saw, like, those feet or something walking down a conveyor belt. Yeah. Yeah, we're doing a lot in our warehouses uh, with robotics. I was just visiting uh, OEM yesterday. Uh, that's doing a ton with robotics, and uh, this is a sort of a non-traditional. Um, so it's it's incredible what they can do. You know, it used to be, you know, you give uh, you know, the robotics one job and they do that job, and now they can do multiple jobs, and it's kind of incredible what we're seeing in that space. Um, um, but that definitely is very relative to electric vehicles because a lot of these new OEMs are building electric vehicles from the ground up, and they're designing them to be built by robots. So we'll see if it works, but uh, it's, it's very applicable to the EV space. Yeah, so when you're looking at diversifying your fleet and, and bringing this stuff, what, what's the best practice or the best ways to approach this, to diversify into electric? Yeah, you know, with any new technology, uh, I, would, I would always, you know, do you want to dip your toe when you want to dive head first? So uh, a wholesale 
uh, change over 100 trucks to electric. I mean, the the amount of infrastructure that would require, you might need to build a power plant for that. Um, so I would dip your toe in, test out the technology, see what the range is. You know, range is going to be different uh, everywhere in the country. Um, you know, weather's a big factor on range. Uh, not so much when it's hot, but when it's cold and the heat's running, uh, you can see a 25% drop, you know, payload, uh, driver behavior. Um, you know, it's sort of uh, the opposite when you think of, of diesel and gas uh, and traffic. Uh, you're not using any battery. I sit in Atlanta traffic all the time, uh, an electric vehicle, and uh, I don't lose any range. But if I'm going 80 miles per hour uh, down 75, um, you know, your range will go down. Uh, dramatically. So, you know, it's very specific to each application. So it's important to test what that looks like um, uh, wherever you are in your application. Yeah, no, yeah, we, we hear you. So, but it's expensive, right? It's expensive to build out a new fleet and to electrify a fleet. So are there still grants or incentives available that carriers can look into? Absolutely. Um, a lot of them are state specific. Uh, California, has uh, several grant programs, both on the vehicle and the charger side. Uh, New York, New Jersey have voucher programs for trucks. You've even seen Texas uh, more regionally get involved. Um, Southern California uh, has some some extra incentives that that we've seen. So it's important to sort of you know get ahead of that. A lot of these are some of these are first come first serve. Some are scrappage. Um, they all have you know there's a little twist to each of them. So you know, we have a, a at Ryder, we needed a, a whole partner, a grant partner uh, to help us with that landscape. But it's definitely uh, getting more intense as we go. Um, and yeah, you're right. There's a premium to this technology like any new technology. I mean, uh, what are the first laptop costs com compared to now? So um, I, I saw this in the passenger uh, side, very expensive at first. And now it's it's not uncommon to see electric passenger cars on the road. I think it's like 5% last Q3 of all sales. So um, I, th I think the trucks will follow that similar curve where it's a little bit slow at first, and then it starts to take off as, as battery technology improves. Right. So Darren at Ryder, what are you guys doing to help your uh, customers? What are you guys focused on in, uh, to help your customers diversify and, and move into this space? Yeah. You know, it starts with, with the charging piece that, you know, we have uh, partners in that space to help evaluate facilities, um, you know, to get them ready for that. Um, and then I mentioned, you know, partners in the, in the grant space to, to match customers with, with the right application. Uh, we've done demonstrations of vehicles, uh, electric vehicles and, and yard tractors, just uh, to give customers a taste of, of what it's like. Uh, really, one of the you know, big pieces of feedback uh, is the drivers just, just love it, uh, especially on the yard tractor side, but really with all of them, just being smooth, um, you know, New technology, you know, the, the, the dash is, is just really upgraded. Um, so the driver feedback's been tremendous on, on the electric vehicles, um, it's particularly the yard tractors. You know, it's not so much noise and emissions coming out. So it's been really, really popular. Yeah, just jump in the go-kart and move it around, especially in those those, those, those yard ones. Well, before we yeah, let you go, yeah. I mean, you get to hang out in that uh, advanced vehicle lab and, and see what's going on. So you tell us, what do you think is something really cool that's going to come out in the EV space this year? Anything excites you? Well, the, we'll see more vehicles. One one cool thing that, that we're part of and that's in the midst of happening. So right now, um, 
really the highest when you look think of a charging station is 350 kW. Um, you know, it could charge a vehicle and you know, still on a truck, it, it could still take a couple hours on, on a tractor. Uh, there's a standard being worked on now that could allow charging up to two megawatts. Um, it's probably two years away, but that'll be a game changer when you talk about over the road charging. And so you don't necessarily have to have charging at your facility, which would be extremely expensive. Um, mm-hmm. You can stop and get a quick 15 minute charge and be on your way. Um, it, it's, it's, uh, I don't know what the size of that, that plug is going to look like. Uh, you're talking about major amounts of power, but uh, it's, it's about two years away from being standardized. So that'll be a really a breakthrough moment for the industry. Yeah, yeah that'll, no, that'll be the explosion. Yeah, great point there, yeah. too. Cause, you know, and, and you bring up a good point here. It's not just about the equipment and the chargers. It's about the right equipment and the right chargers and the charge. Because there's chargers that are for, right. you know, your four-wheeler cars, but you also going to need these superchargers for the trucks. Yeah, yeah, you've yeah, seen yeah. most charging spaces now. A lot yeah. of them aren't even designed for semi-trucks to pull no, into. They're no, designed no. for passenger no. commuter cars. Yeah. Uh, but our wheels are turning. We're on the road, and we are on our way towards this EV future. Hey, thanks for uh, shedding some insight onto this today with us at Global Supply Chain Week. We appreciate your time today. Thanks for having me. Thank thanks, Darren. Take care. Well, you know, exciting space. You're hearing it. All these big needs, right? Yeah. Equipment, charging, the technology that drives this stuff. Well, in order to build the companies, you need entrepreneurs, right? Oh, yeah. Needs, well, and some yeah. of these things are what nobody will believe in. So you got to be a bootstrapper. You got to right? be a bootstrap, like Thomas Healy, for instance. Like Thomas Healy, he was a bootstrapper. They're darn right. Or uh, Trevor Milton. Trevor, well, 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 maybe not so well, much. Or Fraser Good, Good Game. Game. Yeah. Well, right now it's Nate Schutz. He's the host of the Bootstrapper's Guide to the Galaxy. <laughs> nope, it's the Bootstrapper's Guide to Logistics. He's here with us today. What is up, Nate? Good seeing you. Good morning, gentlemen. It's so good to see you both again. You're not just awesome. the host of our new hit podcast, the Bootstrapper's Guide to Logistics, though. You are also at Blue Dot, so you have your hands-on on e-commerce, furniture, supply chain as well. One of the, uh, other than automotive, maybe one of the hardest-hit spaces in terms of mm-hmm. getting space and all those challenges. So this is going to be a good one. But let's start out with, uh, with the Bootstrapper's Guide to Logistics. What is this new show, and why focus on entrepreneurs in a field like freight tech? One, freight tech is incredibly exciting. There are huge stories being broken every day of major funding rounds or breakthroughs in innovation with the technology itself. And behind all of that, everybody has a story. These companies don't just magically pop into existence and become successful. Every one of those companies started likely with one person and an idea, maybe a couple of bucks, and maybe a business plan, maybe not. And I have the distinct privilege and honor of getting to share those stories one at a time in intimate one-on-one conversations every week with people all over the country and all over the world. And it's a privilege I don't take lightly getting to share other people's stories. And I'm just grateful to be here. Yeah, that's it's really awesome, and it really is interesting, and it is really an exciting space, especially now, which is is beautiful being in the industry for thirty four years. But let's talk about some of those things that you've heard in those stories. Talk about some of the challenges and, and the victories that you've heard about in the bootstrapping space with entrepreneurs. Sure. First of all, bootstrapping is hard. It is not uh, like you take a, a round of funding or take an outside mm-hmm. investment, and you've got runway. You have to day one be sustainable. You're putting in your own resources. Maybe you're taking out loans. You're maybe putting your house up as collateral. You're trying to make it go. And if you get it wrong, you might lose everything. And so it's a constant race against the clock. 
And you have to string together a whole bunch of really, really good decisions without a lot of information at your hands. And so the the success rate of bootstrapped companies is not very high. And again, since most of them start as solo ventures, it's one person, they don't have a support network, they may not have a community around them. They're literally figuring it out as they go. So it's sort of the the David and Goliath story or you know, the rags to riches is the the hope for a lot of these folks. And it just isn't easy. And so if we can do anything at all to give them a little bit of tailwinds, maybe some encouragement, um, certainly put a community of support around them, we can give them the best chance of succeeding. And who knows, the next guest might be the future you know, unicorn company in a handful of years. And right now they're a team of two or maybe eight or 15 people and they're grinding it out every day. And that's, that's so impressive to me. It's inspiring. Mm-hmm. You're making me think of founders like a, like a Tamaguchi virtual pet or something like, remember to feed your founder. Remember to pet your founder. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. No, they, they do need nurturing. And this is a show here, Nate, where um, we don't shy away from talking about mental health here on What the Truck. More than happy to talk about it. I know it's something you're passionate as well. And on my show, Insiders, and this show as well, I interview a lot of founders, right? And I've picked on some things about founder mental health, but I wanted to ask you, what have you picked up on in hearing these stories? Anything that stand out? Yeah, I would say the the first thing that stands out to me is none of these founders are actually doing it alone. Behind them is a whole network of support. It's usually their family, their spouse. um, They've got some close mentors or friends. And every single one of them without fail has mentioned their parents as Mm. being what allowed them to do what they did. And that when they go through those really hard times of, am I going to make it this week? I just lost a customer. Or am I going to make payroll and not make it and and lose some people? Every one of them has somebody that they go to that helps them stay level because it's a roller coaster ride. You One hour you land a new customer or you launch a new feature on your SaaS product, and you're on the top of the world. And 30 minutes later, you get a notice from a a customer or somebody Mm -hmm. rejecting your product or a complaint online, and you go into despair. And that's the life of a bootstrapped entrepreneur seven days a week. But the, the most exciting part, I think, is these folks have found the place where they are at their absolute best. They don't wake up on Monday morning dreading going to work. They wake up early because they're so excited to get to work on something that they're so passionate about and that they've dedicated their lives to perfecting. And how can you not be inspired by that? No, I, I agree with you 100%. But with it being such a roller coaster ride, such a difficult thing in moments of just highs and lows, and I can see how that actually gets addictive, right? <laughs> Mentally, those highs and lows. What is the cat? Is there a single catalyst that says, hey, I'm going to go take this really hard road and do this instead of the security of getting into corporate life? No, every, this is the other fascinating part. There is no prototypical entrepreneur. I, I maybe thought there was. And, what has become really obvious is everybody's entrance to this is completely unique. Uh, one of my favorite stories and guests was Mohammed Bani Baker, who started Asmi Freight at the beginning of COVID. He had no trucking experience and he saw COVID coming and he was worried about what was going to happen. So he started four companies and his logic was if only one of the four of them make it, I'll be successful. That's com- so counterintuitive. And, you know, most folks are risk averse and someone like Muhammad is, oh, I'm just going to jump right in. I'll figure it out as I go. Yeah, wow. the theme I often, the theme I often hear that I that I find interesting. But when you think about it, it makes a lot of sense. Is 
After like four to five years, a lot of founders start getting really bored because at that point, mm. they've started to scale up. They started to replace themselves. It's not all generalists anymore. It's specialists in the positions. They have it's not the same baby. It's not the same thing. It's not really the baby anymore. It becomes like a real job. Have you heard that from a lot of founders? Just like there's a certain like almost sunset on, on when it was a startup and when it starts becoming like that too corporatized. It's time to make the new, the yeah. new show. There are some folks who get... Uh, a lot of energy from creating and starting something. They don't want to maintain something. They want to build. And when the company gets to a certain point where you need more administrative support or um, infrastructure behind it, and it starts to feel more businessy, then certainly lots of folks uh, are looking for the doors. Other folks adapt through that in the life cycle of their company as they approach rapid growth. It just presents different challenges. It's you know different level, different devil. And the ones who know who they really are at heart are the ones who know when it's time to either get out or level up. Yeah. So Nate, you're also the VP of uh, global fulfillment at, at uh, logistics at blue dot, right? So how are we looking uh, from your vantage point, from your, your, uh, your seat? Well, I would love it if we had a thousand more entrepreneurs trying to solve all the problems that everyone yeah, faces right? every single day. It, it takes a village of technologists and carriers and brokers and terminal operators and um, you know warehouse talent to to make this whole orchestra sing and work together. And I look forward to I don't know when it's going to be. Is it next year? Is it the year after when when things go back to the new normal? Or not? They're never going to go back to normal. But when the tools that you've relied on for your whole career work again, you push this button and you get a response. That's still so such a challenge that every day you have to wake up and, and try to solve today's challenges and build new relationships and find new solutions to the problems. Because like you mentioned earlier, you know, Charleston, who saw that mm -hmm. coming? Well, a, a lot of folks actually saw that coming. And right. um, it's sometimes it's a, a guessing game and no one has all the answers, but that's what makes it so exciting. So what fires have you been putting out in the, cause I mean, e-commerce had a ton of SKUs on there. It's furniture. Anyone's ordered furniture in the past year. No, it's been a challenge just to receive it. And I can only imagine the nightmare it is on the, the furniture pe people side and their customer service people too, because it's funny when the pandemic, like right before the pandemic, we were almost at like instant delivery, 15 minute delivery. And then like the rug got pulled out and it was like, yeah, suddenly prime is it'll show up whenever. And furniture was <laughs> like three months. <laughs> yeah. Cars were like, uh, yeah, maybe next year, yeah, maybe two maybe years. Not. <laughs> it's been tough, but what's been the hardest part uh, this year so far for you? Is it just the, the loss of option optionality of ports? I would say that's a part of it. Obviously, cost control is critical and knowing and being able to anticipate and predict what costs are going to look like. The other part, though, I think is if you communicate candidly with your customers and you set the right expectations, the typical consumer has adjusted. They, they know that the world is not like it used to be. And as long as you're straightforward and you have a product or a service that you can stand behind with confidence, Customers are generally willing to accept the uncertainty or the ambiguity that's out there as long as you're straightforward with them. Hear you, Nate. I hear you. Nate. Hey, before yeah. we let you go, this is a really important question. Maybe oh. the most important one we'll ask on this show. Big League Chew. Oh, <laughs> as a savory flavor, what would be the best? Great. Unquestionably, hands no, down. No, no, Ray, it's no, be savory. It's got to so be like, savory. It's like, for be me, I would flavor. go with like, uh, like shredded beef, shredded chicken, you know, there's pulled pork. There's all sorts of savory you could go. Well, I, I, I don't know their full spectrum of flavors, but I would go with something like Korean barbecue. 
Korean Ooh, barbecue. Nice. I like oh, that. Yeah, teriyaki go? would be good. I like the pulled pork. You like pulled pork? Yeah, that would be me. I'd go All with right. the Or maybe brisket. I'll go with like Impossible Burger. <laughs> yeah. Uncooked. And this is burger. why I love talking Unco- with both of you. You both make this look so easy. It is not easy. I, hats off to both of you for, for doing what you do. Hey, by the way, so you if too, you friend. are able to use a container emoji in the near future, the long future, you can thank this gentleman, myself, and Flexport's Ryan Peterson, by the way. Oh, is that right? Yeah, container emoji. Yeah, top secret. Well, not Ooh. anymore. I told everybody. But, I think it's out yeah. there now. <laughs> Nate, did you hear anything back on that, by the way? Do, do we know anything about that yet? We will be submitting the application for two new emojis, one for a palette and one for a container in May of this year. It is a Byzantine and archaic seeming process that really? is many, many pages long. And hopefully two years from now, You're there will kidding. be two new emojis. I'm not kidding you. Wow, because, well, I mean, like, we make but, uh, custom emojis all the time. We use them inside here. Well, in Slack, but he's yeah, talking about yeah. the emoji you can actually use on, like, yeah, your no, I know. We, we like the emoji like board. Easy, There's, like, a governing like body a, of emojis. Well, man. you can't yeah. show a gun or anything offensive, right? So you, Sure, yeah, they got to look into you. So, like, if yeah. you did, like, the Ever Given, that would yeah. be offensive. Or, yeah. like, yeah. Protests come in Canada, all sorts <laughs> yeah, of Yeah, protesters in Canada. Well, Nate, thank you so much. Leaf. Look up the Bootstrapper's Guide to Logistics wherever you get your podcast. He puts it out every week. Thursdays? <laughs> is it Thursdays or Tuesdays? Tuesdays. Mondays. Tuesdays. comes out every Tuesday. Subscribe Sweet. to it. Then you won't even have to remember. It'll just be there in your iTunes. Thanks, love Nate. It, man. Take it easy. Thank you both. Take care. Peace, Nate. Speaking of podcasters, radio personalities, writers, journalists, editors at large, people who just absolutely love oil and fossil fuels and dinosaurs and all that kind of stuff. It's John Kingston. Is he still at large? Why does it say executive publisher? That's Kevin Hill. He is editor at large over at Freightways. Kevin Hill is still at large. Hey, it's good seeing you. By the way, you think the Jets sign Aaron Rodgers and win a championship like those last two teams that signed uh, free agent quarterbacks off the street? No. <laughs> yeah, easy answer. No. Easy answer, John. That is, the, that is the fewest words I've ever heard him speak when asked a question. Well, now truckers don't have to spend four dollars plus on diesel to get to the stadium unless they're delivering gear to that crappy yeah, team. But no uh, John, tell us about it. What's going on with diesel? Why is it over four dollars a gallon? Why why are we paying so much now? I thought this was going to recede, and it just hasn't. And yeah, I'm continue. I'm, I'm I'm sort of determined to continue to be a jerk. I want to say more buyers and sellers, but anyway. Um, when you ask why it's going high. But, uh, let's note that the, the, the DOE EIA benchmark price, the one that is the basis for fuel surcharges, crossed $4 for the first time uh, since, I think it was early 2000s. Oh, I should have checked this before. For, uh, I think, since 2014, mm, the other day. Uh, I just checked the DTS.USA data stream in Sonar, and it's up about another $0.06 cents since Monday. So you can figure that that price is going to be higher even though the, actually we've getting a little relief in the commodity markets on the uh, the ultra low sulfur diesel contract on CME has been down a little bit. Like it's a, there's a lot going on. I was uh, on Freightways now earlier today, and we were talking about the EIA weekly data, which comes out, and it's showing that uh, diesel consumption is just roaring along, uh, the highest since I thought it was the highest ever, but somebody corrected me and said uh, actually they could see some matching numbers back in 2007. Even that's not really the point. The, the point is that that the diesel market is is really strong. Consumption of all oil is really strong. Uh, the U.S. four week average was like 22 million barrels a day for all uses, which is incredible. And you know what? We're probably still a little lower than we should be on jet fuel. Uh, we're not flying all the way up to where we were. So, you know, when you when you if you figure that in there, I mean, jet fuel is a distillate like diesel. So if you started having an, another increase in jet, for for distillate molecules as jet fuel, as opposed to diesel, 
And then you talk about another really strong swing. So, you know, we've got a strong trucking market. You talk about it all the time, and that's going to show up in diesel numbers, and it certainly is right now. Yeah. So, you know, sounds like the dog agrees with him. A, oh, yeah. No, that's a, those are amens from the crowd. Those are amens from the crowd. <laughs> you know Kingston's on fire when he starts talking about that distillate live studio molecules. audience at his own house. You hear distillate molecules out of John's <laughs> mouth, you know he's on fire today. Let's talk about what is going on over there in, uh, you know, uh, Russia and Ukraine, what are the yeah. potential impacts from this disaster that uh, seems like it's starting to spark? Well, Ukraine is not a significant oil producer. I'm, I'm sure they produce some. I don't even know what the number is. Um, there's really no reason to believe that Russia would cut its oil production as a result of a Ukraine incursion, except unless it just wants to you know, hurt the West. Uh, but at a certain point, you know, they're, they're really a petrol state. They need to sell oil and gas uh, to fund their, to fund their, their nation. I think I'm more concerned on the possible further cutback of Russian gas supplies. There is a major pipeline that runs yeah. from Russia through Ukraine into Western Europe. That already has been cut back. And the concern here is that if they cut it back further, uh, the nations of Western Europe that are dependent upon it might start burning oil, uh, oil among other things, uh, to generate electricity to replace the natural gas. So obviously, if they do that, that's going to be oil that could be used for transportation fuels. So this is, I think, how the Russia-Ukraine thing could spill into the diesel market. So that's a real concern. Well, yeah, mm. can it have indirect impacts too? Just it, it scares the market. It scares yeah. participants. In the, I mean, we see it in stocks a lot of time. I'm curious, does oil sort of behave that way too? Is there a set, like, does sentiment drive it as well? Or is it fully just buy or seller? Oh, no, absolutely. It's absolutely driven by sentiment. I, I mean, in, 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 your, your question here is, what is uh, what's going to be the impact from Russia, Ukraine? Yeah. If you sat down with any oil analysts, they'll tell you just in terms of fundamental supply demand balance, they'll tell you it's not that high. And meanwhile, you know, when we came in on Tuesday overnight, they said it looked like there was some news that the Russians were pulling back. That turned out to be false. And the price fell like two, three bucks, even though the supply demand balance had not really significantly changed. So uh, and there are also some times that you can see the market will react. It will drive itself upward on fear of something. And then everybody will kind of look around and say, you know what, there really is no reason to be scared about this in terms of oil oil supply. Uh, so, uh, again, earlier on February's now, I cited 9-11 when, uh, when the, the, the planes first hit the building, the price of Brent crude just soared. It went crazy. And then everybody kind of realized that this is probably going to be a negative on world economic activity. And the price then started to fall. It didn't fall back to where it was. It fell below where it was. Uh, because the assumption here was that there'd be an impact on the economy that would be negative to demand, and then, in fact, there was. So, um, but oh yeah, it went. You know, the, the un, there's an old there's an old adage of buy the rumor, sell the fact. So the rumor is of Russia invading Ukraine to some degree, and that's 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 pushing things up. And uh, we'll sell the fact. You know, when, I can imagine when it actually happens, maybe the, the price will fall back. John, yeah. with all these different competing energies. Um, Renew building your fleets out is going to be tough moving forward. There's not a ton of clarity. For example, just last month on the show, right? We didn't know anything about this. We found out that renewable diesel and biodiesel are not even the same fuel, right? Yeah, like one has this monoalkali ester produced with trans bunch of words you don't need to know unless you really need to know them. But uh, you got that, you got RNG, you got electricity, you got these multiple types of diesel. Tell us a little bit about the options that carriers are going to be looking at this decade. Well, it's interesting you say that because I got a chart the other day from a company called Stillwater Associates. I've known them, their president, Dave Hackett, for many years. And it showed renewable diesel consumption in the U.S. by location. 
And there were basically three locations. One was California, the other was Oregon, and the third one was the rest of the country. And overwhelmingly, all the renewable diesel, most, not all, but the, the vast, vast majority of renewable diesel in this country gets consumed in California and Oregon. Why? Because those states have a low carbon fuel standard. And you can generate a lot of credits, a lot of credits that you can turn into money uh, by uh, by consuming low carbon, by consuming renewable diesel in uh, in uh, those those countries. Excuse me, in those states. So uh, if you are a trucker who usually drives east of the Mississippi, up and down the 95 corridor or any other corridor there, it is highly unlikely that you are consuming any renewable diesel. Now you know you can you you, you know you can use the argument that the renewable diesel that's going into California is displacing other diesel, which might go somewhere else in the market. So you are impacted by it. I've always uh, I've always agreed with that. But right now, renewable diesel is kind of a regional thing, and it exists primarily because of these really significant tax credits uh, that you can you can market as a, really as, as as a product. I mean, if you if you've got a bunch of LCFS credits, you can sell them uh, to comp- companies that need to meet their targets but can't generate them on their own. So you're not likely to be using renewable diesel. Uh, I think renewable diesel does have a problem in that the feedstocks are not infinite. Uh, you know, I mean, how many, you know, there's always going to be a demand for soybeans primarily from for feeding cows and feeding yeah. pigs. And how much are you going to divert from that to make renewable diesel? So I think renewable diesel is going to have a role, but I don't know if it's going to be that vast. And yes, forget talking about all the ethers. The main thing you need to know about renewable diesel versus biodiesel is that renewable diesel you can burn as is. You can pour it into your truck, and it will it will uh, power the truck with no problem. Biodiesel you can only blend in a little bit. They'll also put biodiesel in heating oil uh, here in the Northeast. We still use heating oil primarily to heat our homes, uh, and you know again a percentage of maybe two to ten percent something like that. You you cannot pour biodiesel into a truck and expect it to go. You can do that with renewable diesel. Yeah, you can mix it right into the tanks that you already have and so on and so forth. But you're saying just the supply constraints, even if we were to convert to this, it, it's more expensive. And like you said, the source of it is less abundant than our normal uh, uh, diesel, right? Yeah, but this is always, you know, this is, was always the, the, the debate with ethanol. I think, so, you know, something like 40% of the nation's corn crop yeah. now goes to ethanol, okay? So it's, it's food versus fuel. So, yeah, I mean, if you're going to take uh, grease from your French fryer and turn that into biodiesel, renewable diesel, that's great because there's really no other really no other use for it. But if you're going to crush soybeans for it and you're going to pump a bunch of them into the diesel market, at a certain point, you can't help but lift the price of soybeans. Yeah. That lifts the price of food. And, you know, this, and, and this is always a, the, the criticism that this is an incredibly regressive uh, incredibly regressive public policy because it is inevitably going to drive up the price of food to for an, an oil substitute, which we probably really don't need. So there are always trade-offs. I think environmentalists who were kind of big on the idea of ethanol 20 years ago have all soured on it. Uh, it's not really quite the same. The the environmental impact of, of renewable diesel, I think, is, is pretty minor, is you know pretty neutral compared to the, the trade-off of ethanol versus gasoline. So, um, you know, you still got pretty good uh, push for renewable diesel, but I, I just think it's going to hit its limits. John, you know what I found really unrealistic about Back to the Future was at the end, Doc pulls up and they're just putting trash 
in the gas tank, right? I mean, to get no, that Mr. Fusion. They had their Mr. Fusion. Well, they, yeah. well maybe they did, maybe they don't. We, I know we don't have that technology <laughs> on the horizon. Uh, and we can't really put trash in our cars, but that would be cool if we could. But of all these options, you know, we hear about, uh, it seems like EV would be the clear winner, because that's what I hear everyone talk about. But for over-the-road trucking, what do you think is going to be the winner? Is it hydrogen? Is it renewable diesel, biodiesel? Uh, what the hell is it going to be? No, I mean, I don't think it's going to be renewable diesel. We just can't make enough of it. Um, I think it's probably, if anything, it's probably going to have to be hydrogen simply because the weight of the batteries to make an EV is mm. just going to negate that, the advantages there. So it's probably hydrogen or bust. Now, I'm going in two weeks, I'm going to the Sierra Week meeting, uh, the old Cambridge Energy Research Associates meeting, which I used to go to very frequently when I was at Platts. I think the first one I went to was like in 1990, I want to say 96 or something like that, when it was maybe a few hundred people. And now it's, you know, like 4,000 pre-pandemic. And I was looking over the uh, I was looking over the agenda this morning, and boy, the amount of hydrogen discussion is really pretty amazing. So, uh, you know, have me have me on in a couple of weeks, and I'll tell you what they said about hydrogen. Uh, you know, we can join yeah. join with Alan Adler, who of course covers hydrogen for Freightways, and but uh, I'll be armed with a, a whole bunch of new stuff. Wow, you, you, what's fun, what's interesting though is did I sort of pick up on you dismissing EVs for long haul trucking? Do you think that battery semis weight. really aren't in the picture this decade? The battery. Yeah, because first of all, the you know the, the the lithium and the cobalt and the other metallic sources are probably going to be uh, steered in toward passenger cars because they don't you know they, yes they add weight but versus the weight of the batteries in the trucks and you know the range anxiety in a car is significant but the range anxiety in a truck is like you know is is business destroying I, I just I just I can't see EVs in trucks. Oh wow. I'm not I'm not talking about a you know an Amazon van that yeah. drives around right. or no, we get it. You know, we get it. Long haul class uh, eights, big yeah. class eights. Yeah. I, Hydrogen I the can't big see that. Now well, mind you, yeah, I mean and the idea here would be you you would put the hydrogen into the into the fuel cell. And then the fuel cell, I mean, it'd be electric in the sense that the fuel cell sure. would, would convert hydrogen to electricity and then it right. would drive an electric motor. Yeah, but you're so, not stopping um, and plugging it into a wall. But it's not, but it's not battery either. Well, well, hey, very insightful stuff, John. Thank you so much for jumping on with us today. You also do a weekly podcast called Drilling Deep. Uh, who's your next guest, Drilling or what was your most deep. recent episode, and where can people go find it? Well, it actually dropped today. If you go into freightways.com, um, uh, the the guy I did it with it was a guy named Michael Lemke. First, I talk about oil and diesel, some of the same things I talked about here, and then my, my guest this week is a guy named Michael Lemke who had been a truck driver. Uh, he's now a professor of social science at the University of Houston downtown. Wow. And he studies he studies transportation, but he also studies kind of like the psychology of not just truck drivers, but transportation workers in general. So he talked to, he had some good insights and perspectives on what he thought was driving the, uh, the protests in Canada. Very nice. Well, huh. hey, hear about it. Very hot button topic. Take a listen. John Kingston, once again, thank you so much for joining us at Global Supply thank Chain you, Week. Have a nice weekend, sir. You too. Thanks, All right, John. So we started the show with a mystery. What does a Starlight Coke taste like? Let's end it with a mystery. What the hell happened to this truck? Take yeah, a look I at this accident like right here. Look at I the front like end of that know. truck. Well, like, look at that very closely. What happened here? This, this, is, uh, this happened in Beaumont, Texas. According yeah. to 12 News, Beaumont police are investigating that 18-wheeler wreck that backed up traffic along Interstate 10 and closed westbound lanes for several hours near the downtown exit just west of the... Is that Nishis River Bridge? Nekis? Ne uh, 
Neckies? I don't know. Anyways, the wreck involved one 18-wheeler and has damaged one of the concrete median walls, according to the Beaumont police. Uh, I usually don't show these things if someone gets injured or killed here. No injuries no in this one. The driver, injuries, was, guys, uh, great. driver was taken. This is safe to laugh at. But what do you think happened to that truck? I'm looking at it there. I, I don't know. I'd like to hear the explanation. There's literally no tire, no, no chassis, nothing underneath it. It's, the bottom was completely ripped off. Uh, was, I mean, maybe and the it was engine's flaming gone. and they had a clear... I just completely gone. It's like it got zapped <laughs> out of there. It was a really clean cut. I'm <laughs> guessing maybe it had a hit. What, what the heck is going on here? I don't know. That media doesn't look big. It did in the other angle. It, it looks like this may have moved a... Uh, I think we're looking at it from bit. different sides here. Yeah, but there... I mean, I, I don't know. That's... Um, I, I'm confused. That nice. might be the... What he was hauling on. Top Here's the of it. thing: when you're a truck driver these days, you got to keep your head on a swivel too. In oh, the past three weeks alone, there have been two planes what? that have driven into the back of semi trucks. One what? in Jacksonville and one in uh, North Carolina over the weekend. What? Yeah. Planes now. Planes just crashing into. As here, if right? the life of a truck driver wasn't difficult enough. Hey, we got a fireside chat coming up next. It's what's next for bipartisan infrastructure law with Laureen Smith Jr. Skyline Policy Risk Group talking to and John Gallagher of freight waves stay tuned for that we're also giving away our grand prize at global supply chain week in a few short hours subscribe to this show what the truck wherever you get your podcast or download the freight waves to you have to watch it follow me on twitter at timothy dooner follow him at vincent the dude tell him how to be for the rest of this event hey peace and love spread it everywhere